Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. You know, I've, I've said it in one of my books, and I do say this a lot, miracles happen. And the thing is, sometimes they come disguised as adversity, and sometimes suffering can be associated with it. But that doesn't make them any less miracles. And today we're talking to a miracle survivor, a miracle woman, Geraldine Ritter. Uh, and when you hear her story, you'll understand why I say that, because this has been um, quite a journey for Geraldine. And she wrote about it in her book, <clears throat> Bone by Bone, where she tells the entire story. So, Geraldine, welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Thank you so much, Randy. I'm really delighted to be here. I'm so delighted to have you. So, in a split second, you went from being a devoted mother of three boys and globetrotting senior executive for uh, one of America's largest companies to an immobilized ICU patient on a ventilator with a highly uncertain future. Tell me about the day, what happened before, and then how it progressed for you. The thing that always strikes me about the day was just how ordinary it was. I, I live in the Northeast. My job takes me to Washington, D.C., you know, on a very regular basis. And I'd gotten up early that morning. It was an ordinary Tuesday in May. I had meetings in Washington, took an early train, you know, a couple hour train south, did my meetings, got back on the train, was headed home, stopped off, had an event in Philadelphia, got back on the train, sat down, long day, texted my husband, leaving Philly, home soon. And he was on his phone. He texted right back. Hey, great to see you. you know, can't wait to see you. Uh, Stevie, our, our youngest, who was eight at the time, he said, you know, Stevie got a legitimate base hit tonight at, at, at his t-ball game. And, you know, Stevie's a, a, a wonderful and athletic boy, but didn't get a lot of base hits. So okay. <laughs> that was, right. you know, That's we amazing. had this... Yeah, we had this joking back and forth. I can't wait to get home and give him a hug. It was just so normal. And and we're pulling out of Philadelphia. I'm texting with my husband. And I, you know, I, I put my phone down. I get off at the next stop. I was reaching up into my bag to, to get something out to read. And, you know, I stood up in the aisle and, and I was just reaching into my bag in the in the luggage rack above my head um and i started to lose my balance and and i held on to the luggage rack and i'm you know i remember i had taken that train so many times i i knew the route and i remember thinking the train was going fast and and then i started to get annoyed you know at first you're like oh we'll get home quick and and then i started to get annoyed because i was losing my balance and I, I i couldn't reach into my back like i wanted to and then the next thing i knew i was hold, you know i'm standing there holding on the luggage rack and i felt like we were tipping you know and 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 the train was going around a curve and it seemed i remember really clearly thinking we can't be tipping like the, the, the just like trains don't tip and and you're 
you're telling yourself that this isn't real, that you're not tipping. And then there's this flash of realization that we were tipping over. And I remember screaming, and that's my last memory. Which car were you in? I was in the first car of the train. I was in the first car of the train. And um, I remember because I was traveling on business and, and that was the business class car. There were not too many people. I think in the newspapers afterward, there were 12 people in the car. And I remember the faces of some of them seated around me. And unfortunately, a number of people in that car passed. Understandably. When you see the pictures of that car, you would think no one survived. Absolutely. Um, you know, some of the other cars on the train, it, it, it later came out actually very quickly that the train was going 106 miles an hour on a curve designed for a maximum of 50. So more than, more than twice the speed limit on that curve, and it derailed going 106 miles an hour. Um, eight people died that night and, you know, some of the cars <clears throat> are, are jammed up. They're tipped over on the side, actually most of them, but the first car, it just looks like a debris field. If you look at the newspaper photos, it doesn't look like a train car. No. It, 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 you know, looks like that was a seven car train, not an eight car train because the first car is There's just no car debris. left. There's no car. There's no car. So how far, uh, how long had you been on the train when this happened? Um, about two hours. You know, the train derailed just north of Philadelphia. So it was about a two-hour ride from, from Washington to Philly. And uh, it derailed, oh, I don't know, just about 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. It's actually, I, I later read in the paper, it is the sharpest curve in the Northeast Corridor for, for trains. Um, but, uh, you wow. know, the, the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, did an investigation and um, the cause of the accident was ruled uh, essentially distracted driving. It was uh, a loss of situational awareness uh, is what they called it on the part of the engineer. He, he was sober. He was not on his phone. He was not on drugs. But I guess he forgot where he was. And he was going 106 miles an hour into the sharpest curve. So, and this was, um, <clears throat> this was May 12th, 2015, Amtrak 188. Yep. Uh, so for anybody that wants to look this up for yourself, and also it's, it's in um, bone by bone, but which we're going to talk about. But um, you won't believe it. You'll be like, which car, which car was she in? And you'll be like, that car's not there. Yep. That's exactly right. Oh That's exactly. Gosh. People ask me if I was thrown out of the train and, and I don't remember. I was, you know, un unconscious, unresponsive. I, to this day, don't know who found me. Um, I'm eternally grateful. It bothers me because I would so like to thank them. Um, they absolutely saved my life. Uh, I know that I was found quickly. I was a Jane Doe. You know, if you think about it, if a, if a guy is thrown out of a train, he probably has a wallet in his pocket. Mm -hmm. A woman's probably carrying hers in her bag or, you know, or something like that, which, you know, was on the seat, was under the seat. And, um, no, you know, nobody knew who I was. I didn't know who I was. <laughs> um, 
but I know um, from the timestamp on the medical records of Jane Doe, uh, I know I was found quickly. I know I was brought to a local hospital where they quickly realized I was far too severely injured for them to handle and they you know, tried to try to control some bleeding, put me on a ventilator, put in a chest tube, tried to stabilize my spine and put me on a helicopter for uh, the newest level one trauma center in Philadelphia. And by the grace of God, I was, you know, getting the care that I needed. I was in surgery within a couple hours of the accident. Right. And, you know, your entire body was broken. And I just wanted to ask you, because you don't have a memory of that happening. Do you have any loss of memory other than <coughs> that moment when it happened? Oh, I, I was unconscious for days. I, I don't have, you know, I don't remember. I remember the feeling of tipping over. Mm. I remember screaming. And my next real memory is, is days later waking up, immobilized, seeing nothing but a ceiling. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on a ventilator. I can't speak. Uh, I'm in traction. I've got a big neck brace on. So, uh, you know, of course, I've got, I've got feeding tubes and all, all sorts of, you know, uh, I am, I'm quite wired up, but I, I just, um, I remember thinking it was a dream mm. and, and it was a dream that kept coming back and it was a long dream and it was a very slow realization, you know, over days really that this was, that this was real. And because I couldn't speak, you know, I, I would hear people say blink once for yes. Can you hear me blink twice for no? And you know, your instinct, you, tr you keep trying to speak. And I kept being told, don't try to speak, just blink, you know, can you blink? And it, it was unreal. It was, it was unreal. I, I, I can't even imagine waking up to that in that state, having no way to express yourself, not knowing what's going on. Um, it's a nightmare. It wasn't a <clears throat> It, it it really was, but I, I was, you know, I was blessed that the first person I saw was, was the faces of my family, my, my youngest brother, my mother, my husband, and um, my family scattered all over the country. I grew up in Texas. I've got a brother up in Seattle, Washington, uh, you know, other siblings in Texas. My parents live in Colorado, so it was even more disorienting when you're opening your eyes and you're seeing all these people that live thousands of miles from you <laughs> and you know but they were they were so gentle and you know i had feeling in my arms and and even though they were in casts i could i could feel someone you know holding oh, my amazing. holding my fingers and uh stroking my head my hair and and saying you were in an accident you know do you understand the train crashed do you understand I, Anyway, it was, it was extraordinary. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I remember my brother saying, do you want to know about your injuries? And so I blinked and, uh, and, and, you know, I still remember the way he explained it to me, which I'm sure is not, he, he is a physician, but he explained it in a way that, that I think a very dazed, concussed <laughs> confused person could understand he said you know since you hit with such force that all of your 
um, abdominal organs were thrown up into your chest. So I, I ruptured my diaphragm, that, that thick leathery muscle that sort of separates your chest cavity from your abdomen. So my stomach was up by my heart, my colon was in my armpit, my spleen was destroyed, every, my bladder was ruptured, everything was lacerated, perforated, did various resections to just stop the bleeding and put my organs back where they went. My lungs were, of course, collapsed. My heart was actually pushed a little off where it's supposed to be. And then orthopedically, my my chest was crushed on the left side. I, I broke essentially all my ribs in multiple places. So they call it a flail chest, and, and you really can't breathe on your own because your chest is too broken to expand, to, to generate that pressure that it needs to fill your lungs. And my pelvis may have been the most life-threatening immediate injury. It was it was broken in half. You know, I remember my brother saying, you know, the right side of your pelvis really isn't connected to the left side. I'd, I'd broken it through my, you know, my backbone joint and, and the, the pubic bones were crushed. I broke three vertebrae in my neck and my, in my lower back and my neck, but I broke them in just such a way that it didn't impinge on my spinal cord. And they were pretty sure they couldn't be sure, but that I was going to still, that I wasn't paralyzed. And you um, had feeling in your hands. I had feeling so in my hands. Could you feel your toes? Could you feel your feet? I don't think so, because, but I was also in traction and immobilized because my pelvis was so unstable. I, I don't remember being able to move or feel them, but, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were confident. Maybe I couldn't walk, but that I wasn't going to be paralyzed. And, oh. You know, we were just so grateful when, when I was finally, my husband searched all night for me, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't know. All he knew was I was texting and about half an hour later, he was looking on his phone and he got this news pop up, you know, sort of breaking news, Amtrak train derails outside of Philadelphia. And he didn't know if it was my train, you know, he didn't know what train number and, and he's trying to call me and I'm not answering and he, he finally got the idea to use the find my iPhone feature. And, and so he was pinging my phone, like trying to figure out where my phone was. And this kind of Google Earth image comes up of a, of a dot, an icon where my phone is. And it's about 20 feet off of a railroad track in the location where the train crash was reported. And, and he knew, he knew. Um, you know, he didn't know if I'd just been separated by from my phone or maybe I just couldn't reach him, you know, but he, um, he went to a friend's house, they jumped in the car and he just resolved he was going to find me. He, he set off for about an hour and a half drive south just to start searching the city and didn't, they didn't really know where they were going, but they, they walked around the site, they walked to various assistance centers as news of fatality started coming in, they really started to worry. You know, I, I have these just heartbreaking texts from my older son. Um, he was 15 at the time, uh, just turned 15. And before my husband jumped in the car to try to find me, he just said, I think mom's hurt. Mom's been in an accident. You're in charge. And you know, my son, of course, starts Googling and trying to find out what's happening. And and my 12-year-old and my 15-year-old start calling hospitals. We're looking for our mom. And they would just say, patients are still coming in. We don't have anybody by that name. And as the hours went by, 
you know, the fear grew because if I was okay, even if I'd lost my phone, my husband correctly started rationalizing. I would have found a way to reach out, let him know where I was, let him know I needed a ride. Um, And by about tell somebody your name. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and they went to, you know, he started just going hospital to hospital in Philadelphia. And it, at first it would be, we don't have anybody by that name, but, you know, but keep checking people are coming in because hundreds, hundreds of people were on that train and were injured. So it was a mass casualty event, but as the night wore on, they started reporting fatalities, three people dead, four people, five. And the texts between my son and my husband, dad, have you found her? Dad, I need my mom. Dad, people are dead. And um, my husband said about 4.30 in the morning, they'd searched so many hospitals. He remembers just sinking down to the floor and just knowing either I was so badly hurt I couldn't reach him or I was gone. And, And he remembers praying what was probably a very strange prayer, just let her be hurt. You know, just let her be too hurt to call. And it was about six in the morning the next morning when a a nurse had started helping him call hospitals again. And he got word that there was an unidentified uh, woman in surgery at Penn Presbyterian. It was was the last hospital on their list. And they went over to get permission to see the patient and try to identify me. And when they walked into the ICU room, my husband turned to his friend. He said, that's not her. He said his heart just sank. I was, I had just come out of surgery. My body is covered in surgical drapes. My hands are in casts. Everything else is covered. I'm on a ventilator. So my face is covered. My eyes are taped shut and I'm in a big cervical collar. So your neck and everything is covered. So he said, you know, he said, in fairness, I could only see your eyebrows and they were pretty bloody and bruised. (laughs) And he said he remembers his, well, his friend told me directly, his friend said, no, John, I I think that's her. Those are her eyebrows. And, you know, I don't know if it's gallows humor or what, but but my husband remembers turning to his friend and saying, how do you know my wife's eyebrows? (laughs) You know, and they were, they were just so emotional, you know, and, 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 and our friend Glenn said. Your hair was probably all bloodied. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and literally you could, with my eyes taped shut and the ventilator on, you could only see my eyebrows and, and, you know, my head was bruised and bleeding and, and, you know, he, uh, you know, but, but, um, they asked the the hospital staff, does the patient have any personal effects? And they had cut off my clothes, of course, and my jewelry. And they looked at the clothes, but they were dirty and bloody. They had no idea. And and then they pulled out this little bag, a plastic bag, has a big biohazard symbol on it. And it had a watch and a bracelet on it and, and a ring. And I told my husband, it'd be a much better story if you recognize me by my wedding ring that you gave me and he goes eh, a lot of women have rings like that <laughs> you know it's a simple solitaire and but the bracelet and the watch he said I know those I gave her those those were birthday presents it's Geraldine. we found her and and I have the text that night of of him sending a note to my son we found her she's alive but then the trauma surgeon came in and, and talked to him and said, mm-hmm. do you want to know what we've done? Do you, do you want to know about our injuries? And my husband said, I, I've got to call her family. They're all doctors. Please, please tell them. Just, just give me a minute and talk to them. 
and he called my oldest brother and and my 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 brother ends up talking to the surgeon and the surgeon said let's just start at the top and and she started at the top of my head and started working my way and and my mm -hmm. brother said you know she's about halfway down and he said how is she still alive and the surgeon told him that it probably wouldn't be long and that the family wanted to see me they needed to come and at that point my brother called his brothers called my parents and everybody got on a plane and and even cross country they were there by the afternoon oh my gosh yeah my brother still it's it's hard for any of us to to tell that story and and I know one of my brother I know my brothers had a conversation about packing a dark suit for my funeral and and my brother that has his own medical practice you know he said he went to his office manager and said I don't think my sister's going to make it I don't know when I'm going to be back and and one of them ended up packing the dark suit and the other decided it would be bad luck and he would just buy a suit if he needed to attend my funeral and you know it's it's crazy the details you think about and that you remember when you're in such an extreme state. When you woke up, were you feeling pain? No, I was just numb. I, 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 I was just so confused and numb and it really felt like the only thing I could do was blink. That, that, was, that was it for a while. You know, as, as the days passed and they started to, and I was in and out for more surgery that first week, kind of every other day, um, they, they just left my abdomen open. There was too much repair. It was too much for one surgery and they would just go back in the next day and, you know, do some more repairs. And, um, I, but as the days passed, things started to be a little clearer. I started to understand. I started to try to communicate more. And at one point, um, you know, I could kind of use the fingers on one hand and they brought me this letter board. It's like a kindergarten, you know, spelling board. And, and they, I would try to point to letters to say what I wanted to say, which if you're used to a really active life and maybe you talk a lot is maddening. And everybody's trying to help you and guess what you're trying to spell and they are never right. Oh <laughs> and I would get so frustrated, like, just let me finish. And, and right. anyway, it, it, we, we, we laughed at, at one point they decide, okay, this is for the birds. And, and they brought me this whiteboard and, you know, sort of I'm right-handed, but with my clunky left hand trying to kind of sketch out at least a letter or a word at a time. And, and finally, with a lot of patience, it was about a week later, I'm still on the ventilator. I'm still in this state uh, in the ICU, but I, I managed to sketch out. I have a lot to say, you know, wipe <laughs> off, need bigger board. <laughs> they brought me, finally, they bring me this poster size whiteboard that they propped up, you know, beside my bed because it was just getting crazy. But, um, you know, I, we were just, you know, the pain came later once I was less just completely anesthetized and, and numb. And it was extraordinary. It was overwhelming. I mean, it, it, you know, you can't rest your chest. You have to breathe. You have to move. And 
every, every breath, every breath. And of course, I was heavily, heavily sedated with every pain drug out there. But even still, you know, they would tell me to try to breathe deeply, that I needed to do that to heal my lungs. But it, I would try to breathe as shallowly as I could to make the least amount of movement in my chest. Because even through all the drugs, every single breath, every single breath. And, you know, but, but during that time, what I remember most was how grateful we were. I, they didn't expect me to live. And so I was so conscious. They, they tried to keep it from me, but I insisted. I, I asked in my clunky, you know, written, blinky way whether people had died. And they, they tried to distract me, but I could tell they were trying to distract me. And they finally told me that, yes, eight people had died. And we were so aware that I, you know, after about a week, they gained confidence that I was going to make it and I might get off the ventilator and, and maybe my body wouldn't be overwhelmed by infection because I had all of these, I had penetrating wounds in addition to all the crush injuries. Something had, you know, penetrated my hip, crushed my left hip bone. The wound was open. It was dirty. And as we gained confidence, I was going to live. It was a miracle. And, and I, they did so many scans of my brain and they knew I was concussed. You know, I didn't know what year it was. I didn't know who was president, all of those things. Um, but they could tell I didn't have a major brain injury. My brain wasn't swelling. It wasn't bleeding. That's amazing. So the fact that I, I didn't have a brain injury, I wasn't, well, a major brain injury. I, I wasn't paralyzed and that I didn't die. We were, we were just so grateful. It was, it was horrifying. It was overwhelming. It was confusing. We didn't know what the future would hold. We couldn't even think more than a day ahead and, and past whatever the next surgery was going to be. But I was here. I was here. And we were, you know, gratitude, that, that feeling of gratitude, that feeling of being surrounded by people that loved me, of being held, that sustained us. That really sustained us through some very long weeks in the ICU, a lot of kind of follow-on near misses and and tough experiences. But that really, that gratitude sustained us for quite a while. Did you ever have survivor's remorse? Um, not remorse. I I didn't. So the short answer is no, but I really struggled to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say, why did it have to be my train? You know, how random is that? Mm -hmm. um, but you could also say, why those other people sitting right beside me in the car and not me? And, and I really rigid people would say very kind things like god has a plan for you and and you know there's a reason and i really rejected that to be honest i would say you know in in my belief system god had a plan for those other people too i didn't deserve to live somehow more than they did and it, it really it was months and i had been asked to give a talk uh, and my parents' church, actually, and, and I, it really caused me to do a lot of deep thinking about the accident. And, you know, I really landed on the on the concept of grace, which which is defined as this undeserved, unmerited gift. Mm 
-hmm. And that finally made sense to me. I couldn't accept that I somehow deserved or was stronger, you know, to to survive. Mm -hmm. But I could accept a gift, you know, that I was given a gift and I don't know why and there's nothing I did to deserve it, but it was a gift. And then the question is, you know, as time passes, what do you do with that gift? And that's the reason I wrote my book actually was I, I, not to make any money, I donate every dime that comes in from the book to the American Trauma Society and, and to trauma support organizations right. um, and, and trauma medicine. But if one person out there, you know, draws some strength or some hope from my experience, then then I've done something with this experience, you know, and it's not just this black hole in my life because otherwise nothing good came out of it. I mean, it was, it was a tragedy and, and eight families lost loved ones and, and hundreds, not just me, but hundreds of people were injured. And so it's like the one thing I can do with the experience and that at least makes me feel a little bit better about, you know, what was really years lost. I spent two and a half years, well, about two years, almost four months on total disability out of my job, just recovering and surgeries and therapy and, and getting my strength back. I was on lots and lots of opioid painkillers for a very long time. So then I had to go through a weaning process. Mm-hmm. I went through depression. I went through PTSD. I went through a lot of pain management counseling you know, all these things that I just, you know, my world changed in an instant. I was jumping on a plane, going to small villages in Africa for the foundation that I managed. And I was attending board meetings and and capitals like Brussels and Washington and Tokyo. And then I'm at home in bed and I'm not able to drive. I'm not able to be able to go to the bathroom by myself. I can't make myself a cup of coffee for over a year. You know, and that was one of the hardest things, accepting that dependence, that loss of control. And, you know, I wanted to have a plan. Okay, well, within six weeks, I'm going to do this. Within, you know, I'm calling my boss, tell him I'll be back by the end of the summer. You know, these bones <laughs> just need to heal. And, you know, I kind of have in mind, well, you break your arm, it heals in six weeks, you get the cast off and you're good. And <clears throat> everyone knew it wasn't true, but they didn't want to bust burst my bubble you know they 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 wanted you know you have to have some optimism but I think one thing I learned in that healing journey was it got it has to be that optimism has to be tempered with kind of a cold hard realism and and that acceptance of a loss of control that I was you know nobody all of my specialists could talk about the healing time for their body part (laughs) Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> but, but nobody had really seen this constellation of injuries. My orthopedic surgeon told me, he said, Gerilyn, you tell me somebody comes in to the, to the trauma bay with a, a crushed chest and pelvis. He said, my next question is, when did they die? He said, and, and he later told me, he said, I have no medical explanation for how your body absorbed that much force to do what it did to your bones and you don't have a traumatic brain injury. That's said, incredible. I don't, I don't know where the force, where hmm. the energy went. And like I said, you can't hear that and not be grateful. 
but yet when every breath hurts after months and you're stuck in bed asking for somebody to help you go to the bathroom, that gratitude starts. It, it, it's hard to be grateful for, you know, on the one hand, I was glad I wasn't paralyzed and I could feel the pain, but it's kind of hard to be grateful for pain for very long. <laughs> and that's when the depression set in. So you said, and I was going to ask you about the PTSD because um, I work with um, emotional trauma, <laughs> psychological trauma things with mm -hmm. clients. Um, and the, your whole family has to have it. Yeah. Were you treated? Yeah. Were you all treated? Um, not all of us. And, and I have some regrets that I did not realize. My kids are great. They're healthy. They're doing fantastic. But I don't think I realized at the time how traumatic it was for them. You know, they're, they were, uh, you know, teenage and preteen, you know, young boys, rambunctious and they cared and they said they did amazing things and they rose they rose to meet this this family crisis this challenge and i'm so proud of them mm -hmm. i wish i had been able to help them more um my yes. husband and i did get counseling not just for ourselves but also for the relationship you know as much as i was instantly thrown into this role of of patient and and total dependent my husband was instantly thrown into the role of full-time caregiver right. and we had all good intentions we had a strong marriage of being there for each other but i will tell you those two years there were times when i thought we wouldn't make it we were having the worst fights of our marriage we we just reacted differently our situations were so different and i Jonathan had a lot of anger. He was angry and, and it helped him to vent that anger and talk about it. And I was just sad. I was just crying. I was just consumed with getting through the day. I had no headspace for his anger. I, I said, you're, 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 I, I can't take I this, you know? And <clears throat> he he felt like he was doing everything for me and and I was ungrateful. I felt like I was being extraordinarily grateful and he had no idea what I was going through. It was just right. it was tough. And and now I know that that is very common and very normal. But we we didn't know that at the time. And it was really my trauma surge and I I give her so much credit. It was it was at the end of a long day of follow-ups back at the hospital. Every specialist, I'd seen the pulmonologist and the urologist and the neurologist and the orthopedist and the gastro, you know, and my last appointment of the day is with my original trauma surgeon and, and they roll me in in my wheelchair. And she said, Geraldine, how are you doing? And I, I went to answer and I immediately started well, my, you know, the ribs are doing this, the hips, this, it's hard to do this. And she said, no, no, no. How are you doing? And I looked at her and I, I, I just realized later I'd started to even think of myself as this collection of broken systems of broken body parts. And how was I doing as a, as a whole person? <laughs> I, I looked at her and I just burst into tears. And I realized I, I didn't know how to answer that question. And I guess, I guess the real answer was I was not doing very well. And, and she said, Geraldine, I recommend that all my trauma patients get counseling for PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I had, that had not occurred to me. 
it had I knew I was breaking into tears having bouts of anger I couldn't sleep I but but you know there were there were reasons for those things you know yeah I'd been in an accident of course I was sad I I didn't think PTSD applied to me I was not a combat veteran I was not a victim of of intentional violence a, a crime victim a victim of domestic violence I so I didn't think I, I was like, I'm, I'm a very rational, educated person. Accidents happen. I was in an accident. Car accidents happen all the time. Mine happened to have been a train. And I kind of started arguing with my trauma surgeon. I was like, no, 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 no. Like this was an accident. I know nobody tried to hurt me. And she said, and she didn't argue me, but she just kind of said, you know, she repeated, I recommend that all my trauma patients. And she said, just keep it in mind for me. And it was about a month later and I was really down and my husband and I were fighting and I would find myself yelling at the kids because their bedrooms are upstairs, you know, I'm stuck in the guest room downstairs, basically off the kitchen. And, and that was pretty much where I lived for over a year. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, 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 you know, mom's in bed crying or, or, or grouchy and the kids would retreat upstairs to their rooms. And I said, wait a minute, you know, I, I, no, something, something's got to change. It's a family I, tragedy. I, I did seek out counseling mm. and it absolutely, it helped me realize that it wasn't weakness. It didn't matter the source of the injury. It's, it's, it's bio, it's physiological processes. You yes. know, it's chemicals in your brain. It is the way your brain is mm. rewiring itself from this overwhelming trauma and and constant bombardment of pain and you know that knowledge understanding at that level why i was feeling like i was it wasn't that i was wallowing or that mm -hmm. i was seeking attention or maybe you don't I just want to be wasn't. a victim <clears throat> well i just kept thinking maybe i'm not trying hard enough i need to try harder in mm -hmm. physical therapy or in rehab mm -hmm. or maybe i'm i'm mm -hmm. i'm letting the pain get the best of me i'm i'm mm -hmm. you know maybe i didn't take my meds on time you know i and, and right. i wanted there to be a reason and and finally i learned yeah there's a reason but it was one that i had I just didn't understand mental health, to be honest. I, I thought I did. I thought I was not one of those people that had biases against mental illness. And I realized I absolutely did. I was like, no, 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 that's, that's not me. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course it's you. Of course it's you. Of course it's you. Yeah, people, you know, yeah, PTSD is so misunderstood. Absolutely. Um, so many people have it. And, absolutely. you know, anything. You can even watch someone else get injured. Oh, yeah. You can get PTSD. But what you're saying is something I say to people all the time. This, your rational mind is not going to fix this. this right. Is, this is in the body. This is the nervous system. That's Everything exactly is disrupted, right. right? And so what um, was it just talk therapy that you had or did you have um, EMDR or anything like that for the trauma? Yeah, I was I was never offered EMDR. I think maybe back in 2015, it wasn't as widely mm -hmm. accepted or available. Mm -hmm. um, I I have heard good things about it. I wish I had tried it. Mm -hmm. um, I did. Uh, it was talk therapy, and um, uh, uh, my my general practice doctor 
for the I was having all sorts of pain of course the the pain from the damaged tissue but also nerve pain because mm -hmm. well number one I had damaged nerves but but also some of the hardware it is the the hardware they had put in my pelvis to to steady it some of it laid right on top of these major nerves and it just it had to the doctor said I'm, I'm this is where the hardware has to go for you know but but it meant I would get these lightning bolts jolts of pain down my good side down my right side because those nerves were, were were impinged by the hardware and I thought oh my gosh I can't move the left side and now my good side and so anyway the the point of all that was that my doctor had given me some of the the, the SSRIs, the mood drugs, because they're also indicated for nerve pain. Right. And it's funny when she said, she said, you know, I, they, they just really, I was taking all sorts of drugs, I think four different kinds of opiates and, and other painkillers and things, non-narcotics also like Lyrica. But um, she said, you know, this, maybe this will help. It's, it's indicated for nerve pain, but you know, it's also indicated for mood and, and maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> And and I think because technically I was being prescribed it for pain and not for mood, I, I accepted it. Okay. And, you know, again, that was part of my bias going in that, okay. that, that no, 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 I don't need a mood stabilizer. You know? <laughs> so I, I did in a backward kind of way, begin taking antidepressants. And I think that and the therapy and, and frankly, time, you know, faith, my mm -hmm. family, having friends around that just, you know, scooped up our family and took care of us for so long. My parents, you know, they flew in, as I mentioned, within hours of the accident and they didn't leave for months. They just, they went to, they went to Target, they bought some clothes and they just, you know, moved in the whole months I was in the hospital and in the rehab facility and then helping mm -hmm. me transition home in my wheelchair. I was so fortunate, which, did contribute to some guilt, you know, about the depression and the PTSD. I thought people died, you know, I, I am gonna be better. I may be in a wheelchair now and in this big brace, but I'm at home at a beautiful house looking out over, it was the summertime, looking out over my yard, access to the best doctors, good insurance, family surrounding me, what right did I have to be crying and depressed? And, and I felt mm -hmm. guilty that I wasn't recovering quicker. I felt guilty that I was sad. And that took me a while to, to mm -hmm. give myself a break and say, you know, I, I, had to give up, I had to give myself a break and I had to let go of control. This, this need to set a deadline by which I was gonna be better. I was gonna be walking, I'd be back to work. I, I had to accept that I, 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 I kept had, the you optimism. Control. You had no control. Well, I was going to do those things. I wasn't going to give that up, but it wasn't going to, I couldn't control the schedule. It wasn't going to be on my timeline. It was going to take a lot longer than I wanted. <laughs> and, and once I kind of came to that, once I finally called my boss, you know, I, I kept calling him every six weeks. Well, just another month or two, just another month or two. And I finally called him. It was almost, a, I don't know, 10 months after the accident, I just found out I needed another big reconstructive surgery. And I finally said to him, you know, Mike, I have no idea when I'm coming back. And he, he said, yeah, it. exactly, exactly. He, he said, it. yeah, I know. And I just, and, and in a way that was so freeing and liberating to just say, you know, 
I, I'm doing my best. That's all I got. I don't know. <laughs> and just accepting that and that my job right now was just to work on recovery and, and be with my family. That was my job and that was it. Right. And, and that was hard enough. <laughs> and that message is so important for my listeners to hear. Um, yeah. It's not, you know, I just, I, I have training in a particular kind of trauma therapy and um, one of the things they say is it's not all in the mind. People think our mind controls everything. Oh no, oh no, 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 the body is, that is... is what controls everything. And, um, and, 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 but your, um, the way that you were talking to yourself and treating yourself is so common with yeah. people with all things. I should be able to do this. And not only that, now, not in your situation, but people will say to them, you should be able to do this. You know, why yeah. is it taking, you know, so people really need to understand right. that trauma and mental itch, health issues are not necessarily in the mind. And that's so important. It's, so, uh, you know, that, that connection, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt okay. you, but that, that, that connection is so important to understand and understand that this is not a, a soft, fuzzy thing. I mean, they see it on brain imaging studies. This is science. And, and that's what I, that's what resonated with me. That's what I needed to understand. Maybe everybody wouldn't need to understand it that way, but I did. And, and the same thing was true almost in reverse. I had always dismissed therapies like meditation and, oh, that's just, you know, I, I that's we yoga. exactly, exactly. And understanding that no we you know there are patterns of thinking there is you know this concept of neuroplasticity that you can retrain your brain in how it responds to those pain signals that was huge for me and i i only got there out of desperation you know i was it was i don't know seven eight months after the accident i they were starting to try to wean uh, I was trying to wean off the fentanyl. I'd been on huge doses of fentanyl oh just so gosh. I could breathe for months and months and months. And and finally, uh, you know, all under medical supervision, mm -hmm. I was starting to wean. And I wasn't addicted in the sense of having those psychological cravings, like I, I need the drug. But your body is absolutely accustomed to it. Your body is physically dependent on it. And so as I started weaning, all of the withdrawal symptoms you hear about, the the shakes, the nausea. And of course you have less pain medicine, so you have more pain. And oh. I'm thinking it's nine months after the accident. And here I am in my bathrobe, unshowered, all day long, staring at the fire, crying, shaking, chilled, nauseous. I, I was at the end of my rope. I, I was like, I have everything medical science has to offer me. I have the best health care and I'm, and, and look at me, look at me. And, and I finally did, uh, a friend had recommended this uh, trauma trained yoga instructor who did a lot of meditation and I didn't believe in it, but I was so desperate I would try anything. And, 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 and she would come to my house and work with me. And I, you know, I always thought like, oh, 
yoga is for people that like don't really want to sweat when they exercise. You know, <laughs> I was I was so arrogant, you know, and I was like meditation, like give me a break, how boring. And and when I was pregnant with my first son, I refused to go to those breathing classes because I was birthing classes. I'm, I told my husband, I've been breathing for thirty years. <laughs> I think I got this down. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you know, the idea of sitting there and doing breathing exercises to heal me, I was like, you know. But when I when I opened my mind to it, when I gave it a try, I still found it really boring, but it helped. I mean, it just blew me away how much it actually helped and that it gave me back this sense of control, this sense of agency over my body that that I, I there was something I could do about it. And it that was really empowering as well. So. um what I hear here, uh, the sense, and this would be for pretty much everybody, the sense of losing f complete control over your life, over your yeah. body, over everything is very difficult. Yeah. But for someone who's structured by control, yeah, it's particularly <gasps> difficult, right? So we're, are you somebody that was particularly, like you had, you did it, it, yeah. it happened. You created it, it happened. Yeah, I like the way that you put that. I don't consider myself a, you know, it sounds kind of pejorative, a, a controlling person, but I am very goal oriented. You know, I have two advanced degrees. I had a high level job. I traveled a lot very independently. You know, I was extremely active. And so, yeah, you got to set a schedule if you're going to get off your plane from China and still make the t-ball game in the afternoon, dragging your suitcase behind you across the field. You know, that was that was me, you know, and all of the sudden, the only thing on my calendar was physical therapy that I had to ask somebody to drive me to every day. And, you know, pretty much a zillion doctor's appointments. And, and when was the next surgery? And that was it. That was it. And are you are you more ever having gone through all of this? Are you more a go with the flow person or are you back to wanting? You know, <laughs> I have a better perspective on time mm -hmm. and and trying to really see time as a gift. And, and I it happened over the course of my recovery. I was in bed one afternoon still in my pajamas. I, I must not have had physical therapy that day. And it's it's three in the afternoon and all three boys come home from school. They they walk in the door. They're, I don't know, you know, nine, 13, 16. And by that point, and it hit me like I'm never home when they come in the in the afternoon. Like, I, you know, I try to be home at night for dinner, but if I wasn't traveling, but I'm like, I'm here every day right here in the kitchen when they come in and like trying to I, I you know I thought I need to turn that around I'm not stuck here I'm here when they come in and and for the foreseeable future I'm not going anywhere and I need to be using that time so so kind of my I guess that productivity you know urge it's like let's use this time and what a gift and and so you know I I, I vowed that day that if I did nothing else, I was going to be out of bed by three o'clock. That that was what I, I read this book. It was called that we all have our, our personal scum line. <laughs> and I was like, okay, no matter what else, no matter how bad I'm feeling, I will at least be out of bed by three in the afternoon. 
and I'm not, the boys aren't going to come in from school every day and see their mom in bed. Like I, I'm going to be up, I'm going to be up and, and just setting that kind of goal as opposed to, I'm going to be back at work in a month. That was a realistic goal. That was something I could do. And then sometimes all four of us, three boys and me, we'd go back, you know, into my bed. I had one of those big hospital beds that did all these adjustments that the boys like to play with. And we'd watch a movie in the afternoon. And it was like, wow, th there's joy in this. You know, there's joy in this. There's joy in, in being in a, in a big bed and, and wrapped up with my boys at four in the afternoon watching a movie. When did I ever get to do that? And, you know, I, I noticed it in my kids too. We, we hug more. We say, I love you more. And, you know, they, they have a sense of perspective and, and I think empathy mm -hmm. that is the silver lining in this experience for them too. Yeah. I mean, I see a silver lining, of course, what you went through, it, 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 that can't compare. But there's yeah. always something, there's always something that you take away. Right. So what, uh, how are you doing now? You still have issues, right? You're still. I'll never be the same. You know, I'll never be as healthy as I was. I will always be, um, you know, it's funny. Somebody asked me how I identify, how I describe myself. I said, you know, there's no one thing that I say, oh, well, I'm an amputee. I'm this. I, I, I said, I'm medically vulnerable. I said, that's how I describe okay. myself. I'm, I'm immunocompromised. I don't have a spleen. My lungs are pretty scarred. My abdomen is absolutely full of scar tissue. So I, I keep having to have surgery to kind of clear out the scar tissue. Yeah, and I, yeah, right. you know, sometimes you're, um, I, I've had a couple emergencies where my intestines have gotten twisted over themselves because of the scar tissue and you've got to go in and mm. have a big emergency surgery mm. and do a big resection and you know next thing you know you're in the hospital for six weeks again but I'm okay all of that said my pain is manageable with no prescription medicines you know I take take nothing but Advil and Tylenol although I do take a lot of Advil and Tylenol <laughs> but you know that's it and um I, I walk without a limp most times, you know, except on, except on bad days. I, uh, can, I don't run, but I can exercise and, and I do Pilates. I'm working full time. I wow. travel. I, this summer I, I had a trip to Rwanda for work, Switzerland for work, the West Coast twice, actually three times. And you're back at it. <laughs> I am, I am, you know, wow. and I am so grateful and, and I, I'm back at it not because I just feel like I have to work, you know, but I believe my work is meaningful. I think I am more thoughtful about my work now. And, and when I went back to work very slowly, first part-time, then full-time, and my friend said, why are you doing this? Why are you going back to the corporate world after what you've been through? And I, I really did think about it. It had been a couple years at that point, And I said, you know, I work in healthcare. I believe in what we do. I wasn't ready to retire. My boys are getting older. I, I, you know, but I, I, after a couple of years, I went back for different reasons. You know, I went back because I really believe in the purpose of what we do. And I promised myself that the day I felt like I was punching a time clock or just getting through the day would be the day I quit and do something else, you know, and 
I've tried to keep that sensibility, that sense of, of purpose and using the time that I was gifted. Right. And you were gifted. And um, this um, writing this book and being able to share the, you know, these messages of, you know, hope and faith and um, patience and courage, all of these things, you know, amidst all the negativity is so important for people to understand that. Yeah. Um, and it's tragic that you had to go through that to reach that. But the point is you've used it and you're putting that message out there. I'm trying. I am, I am trying, you know, we all have something, you know, mine, mine was uh, kind of unusual and that not too many people are in major train derailments, but no. <laughs> we all, we all have something, you know, uh, car accidents are tragically common. Uh, you know, terrible diagnoses. People have stuff with their kids, or right. And uh, I deal with emotional abuse with all my exactly, clients. Or, years or, years or a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we yeah. all. Very few of us walk through this life unscathed. And, Nobody and so does. That, exactly. My 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 hope is that a message of hope and positivity and the healing power of of time and perspective. Mm-hmm. My hope is that maybe it helps somebody else out there. And it will, and it will. And, you know, doing this interview today is, is, is really important in that journey because um, my audience is really geared towards this. They, this is a great, um, this is a great, this is great information. This is a great experience to share. You know, your perspective is really important for everybody to hear, you know, and the thing is we can't compare one tragedy to another we can't say okay that was worse so i shouldn't feel bad like you said you know well they all died and i'm alive so i shouldn't feel bad no right you know we we each have our own journey right of what we're going to go through right and to us it could be the most important thing the most devastating thing to us it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else could you know i mean that's right we're, we're we individuals. We do. That's right. And we go through it in different ways. We experience in different ways. But I so appreciate what you do because there is power in sharing our story. You know, it, it trauma is so isolating. I, I talked about how hard it was on, on the relationship my husband and I have. And happy to say we've been married 26 years. We got through it. But there was a time we thought we weren't going to. And you feel like even the people you're closest to in your life cannot understand. And in a way they can't, right? You know, you, you, this, this disconnectedness. And that's actually why I called my, my book Bone by Bone. It was an allusion to, it is an allusion to kind of the gradual process of healing. And, and yes, I broke a lot of bones, but there's this poem by Emily Dickinson in the last line, it's called, there is a pain so utter. And the last line is, is, is talk uh, that is, is bone by bone. And it, it talks about that, that disconnectedness that, that is so such a, such a characteristic of trauma and that feeling of isolation and alienation from other people that just can't understand what you're feeling. And that's why I think it's important for people that have these experiences to share them because 
other you're you're not totally alone you're not the only one going through it and there is positivity on the other side right and there's a gift in that survival or or something there's a purpose in that survival yep Um, and you've got to find some way to 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 have that purpose what what did this this has to happen for some reason so you wrote the book um and you're sharing these experiences which is so healing um, well, it, it is. And, you know, it's funny, people have heard of post-traumatic stress, but they, they haven't, you know, post-traumatic growth, uh, you know, is a real it thing. Is. It's huge. And, and, and they've heard of survivor's guilt, but they might not have heard of survivor's pride. Mm-hmm. And I take no pride in surviving May 12th, surviving the day of the accident. As I said, that was that was a gift that was luck that was fate whatever your your you know your, your your framework yeah tells you it was but but the but the day after and the day after and the month after i do have pride in and i didn't do it alone i had so much help and support but you don't get through it without um a lot of inner strength and and it's okay to feel proud of that. We should feel proud of that. And survivor's pride is so justified. And I, mm. I, I do have that, you know, and I, I've accepted that that's, that's a good thing. That's not something to be ashamed of. I have earned that. That's, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Thank I think you. that's probably so, that's such a great way to sort of end this interview because, you know, yeah, I always tell people, you know, just look in the mirror, just go, I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor. Exactly. I, you know, it, it is. You need to cheer that on because yeah. that's quite an accomplishment. But the other thing is that through all of this, you, you, like you said, you gain this inner strength, this ability. You have to validate yourself. You have yeah. to be the person to, you, you can't be bouncing stuff off of people because you're not going to get what you need. Right. You have to develop all these tools within, but the other side of this is glorious. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely right. You know, the, it, it sounds, uh, I don't know, maybe silly, but, but the sun shines brighter, the, the sunsets are prettier. And as I said, in, in my family, I, I know that we hug each other tighter and more often. <laughs> wow. What a story. Thank you. It's, it's, I'm so happy that we're able to sit here and talk about this. Thank you. Thank you. I really so, appreciate um, the opportunity. And okay. so this the book is, the book, is everybody. Yeah. Bone by bone. And buy it. Not only will you love the story, but it's going to go to really important, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Cha- well, you're supporting cha- other charities, but it's, it's no, it's it's you're you're supporting others by doing it. You know, um, part of the the money goes to the Trauma Survivors Network, which is a peer network open for any trauma survivor, no fee, no, okay. <laughs> and and it's a place you can gather with other survivors and just share stories, and it's it's a place where you can feel less alone and realize what you're going through is normal, mm-hmm. is expected, and it's not forever. It's no. not forever. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Randy. Yes, on that note, mm, beautiful. Um, 
I'm so glad that we got to meet today and that I got to talk to you about this. And I'm so glad that my listeners get to hear your perspective on this because it's so um, enlightening. Thank you. you know, Thank you. I really so appreciate it. It really is. It's, these messages are so important and I'm really glad that we got to share that today. Thank you. So have a wonderful day and keep up you have a wonderful day and and i i hope your listeners do as well and and again thank you for the opportunity you're welcome bye-bye